Hi, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Still Pretty. We're here today to talk about Dead Things, the 13th episode of season 6. It aired on February 5th, 2002, and was written by Stephen S. DeKnight, with story editing from Rebecca Rand Kirshner and Stephen S. DeKnight. This episode was also directed by veteran Buffy director James A. Contner and boy, Kenya Tal. <sighs> this is going to be a tough one, folks. Hard on the heels of the somewhat whimsical Double Meat Palace, we're headed into super dark territory, and I warn you, it's going to be a rough ride. Ow! Bloody hell, what'd you do that for? <laughs> Dead Things is a challenging episode to watch, but it's full of rich resonances and real darkness. Season 6 has been tonally all over the map, but Dead Things feels like a confident step into the shadows while never forgetting where we've been. In this episode, we weave in a lot of the past as we move forward. From a reflection of Faith's fall in season three, to pulling Katrina in from Warren's past, to Jonathan's casual attempt to, once again, take away a woman's agency with regard to sex, showing that if he learned anything from the events of Superstar, it was not near enough. All right. Let's get into the weeds. You bunch of little boys playing at being men. Well, this is not some fantasy. It's not a game, you freaks. It's rape! What? Our main story this week involves the growing darkness of the Geek Trio. Up until now, Andrew and Jonathan have been at play, giggly nerds not taking anything seriously and not really noticing Warren's growing darkness. At least, not noticing it enough to be bothered by the implications of this week's diabolical plan, a cerebral dampener that will make any woman their willing sex slave. And of course, I put willing in quotes because there is nothing consensual about this at all. But the fact that this word even makes it into their language when they talk about this plan shows how completely delusional these guys are. We've seen Warren's darkness almost from the beginning. In the flashback that we get in this episode to I Was Made to Love You, in which Warren's girlfriend Katrina discovers that he created a sex robot and is not happy, we see the moment in Buffy's memory when Katrina is yelling at him and he tells her to shut up. Warren is a clear misogynist from the start, and even when the geek trio is comic relief, Warren always has this element of darkness in his character. In Gone, we saw how little he cared whether Buffy lived or died. In Dead Things, we're seeing where that path eventually leads. It's clear that Warren is planning to take control of Katrina's mind from the beginning. He obviously goes to that particular bar at that particular time in search of her because he expects her to be there. And when he finds her, he throws away his earpiece. He takes control of her and to add insult to injury, makes her dress in a French maid's uniform. He intends to rape her first, but then has no problem sharing her with Andrew and Jonathan. This isn't about loving Katrina. This is about punishing her for rejecting him. When she wakes up and confronts him with what they've done, that they're boys playing at being men, that this is rape. Both Andrew and Jonathan have a moment of shame, but Warren doesn't. He hits her in the head, accidentally killing her, but even then, his problem isn't that he just killed this woman that he supposedly loved. As far as he's concerned, she got what she deserved. She rejected him, right? And here, we get three varying shades of morality in the trio. Jonathan, whose moral center has always been weak, seems to finally realize what they've done and is appropriately horrified. 
Andrew is scared about consequences and seems to regret that she's dead. He says they should turn themselves in, a reflection of Buffy's response later when she thinks she's killed Katrina. And then there's Warren, the darkest of them all, playing on Jonathan and Andrew's essential weakness of character by convincing them to play along and make Buffy think that she killed Katrina. This all escalates into another plan. Jonathan dons a glamour to look like Katrina, Andrew summons time-shifting demons, and Warren watches as they make Buffy believe that she is the one who perpetrated the murder. Now, we're going to have to do some whistling here. Uh, First, how a plan with so much chaos involved could possibly be so perfectly orchestrated as to make Buffy believe that she killed Katrina. Second, the fact that these time-shifting demons don't seem to have an effect on Spike, which I guess you could explain by the vampire thing, but they don't seem to have an effect on Jonathan either. And third, the idea that Jonathan could possibly ever take a Buffy backhand in the face and still be conscious enough to walk away to the van. I'm happily whistling because in the end, Warren's satisfaction over how perfectly the plan worked is disturbing enough to earn it. Andrew's relief that the plan worked and that it's cool to him that they got away with murder shows his essential weakness of character. But Jonathan's finally awake to what's really been happening and his disgusted jibe, the night's young, there's got to be more girls we could kill, shows that there will be a fissure within the trio. When I first watched season six, it was at this point that I understood that something darker and more complicated was going on with the trio. And this was when I started to really like this season's big bad. What we're talking about with the trio is human frailty, human darkness, and how it's not all that different from demon darkness. The shades of immorality along the spectrum from Jonathan to Warren make this a richer subtext. And at this point, season six starts getting serious. What? Well, isn't this usually the part where you kick me in the head and run out, aren't you fluttering? That's the plan. As soon as my legs start working. As our big bads slide into increasing darkness, we see this also happening with Spike and Buffy. We open with this playful sex romp on the floor, but even then, when Spike mentions that he ate a decorator once and that's why his crypt is so nice, Buffy doesn't blink. He's a killer, and in this moment, she's not disgusted by it. I guess you get used to that sort of thing after a while. He wants to know where the relationship is going and ends with a tease, asking Buffy if she trusts him, to which Buffy responds, never. Our next interaction is on the balcony at the bronze, where Buffy has isolated herself from her friends and moved into the shadows, where she and Spike have sex while watching everybody down below. The bright colors and lightness of the Scoobies happily dancing contrast beautifully with the shadows in which Spike takes Buffy, telling her to watch her friends as he does. She is starting to believe that she truly is a creature of shadow like him. And our darkness three beat finishes when Buffy tries to turn herself into the police and Spike pulls her into the alley to stop her. They fight and she beats him bloody. We see her face as she realizes what she's done and he responds with, you always hurt the one you love. A sentiment she references later in the episode when explaining how she's so sure that Warren was the one who killed Katrina. The resonance between Buffy and Warren here is disturbing, and I think it's deliberate, and it's really good. I have the sudden urge to dedicate my productive cooperation. Well, if you close your eyes and repeatedly smash yourself in the head with frozen meat, it'll go away. And alongside all of this descent into shadow, we have Tara, who contrasts the darkness with light. 
In the Double Meat Palace break room, she sits with Buffy and gets her assignment to find out why Spike can hit Buffy. In this scene, Buffy is in the light as well in her brightly colored outfit, and even the dingy DMP break room is filled with cheerful messages and bright daylight. Later, when Tara bumps into Willow outside of the magic box, she is kindness and love and goodness personified, awkward, but really genuinely happy that Willow is doing so well. Then finally, when Tara sits down with Buffy to tell her that nothing is wrong with her, she learns the truth about Spike and Buffy as Buffy breaks down, begging Tara not to forgive her. But Tara continues to extend her kindness and light and soothes Buffy as she weeps. It is Tara's presence, this incorruptible source of goodness, that brings a balance to this really dark story. Tara is a clear representation of hope, and when Buffy lays her head in Tara's lap, both resisting and accepting forgiveness and absolution, our theme of twisting darkness is intertwined with a melody of hope, and it's a brave and complex place to take this story. Look, it's easy to be all grim, dark all the time. The world is a pit and there's no way out, no way forward, Battlestar Galactica, blah, blah, blah. To place Terra in the central space within this story shows the courageous nature of hope and allows it to sit in complexity next to all of that darkness. That's bold, y'all, and I love it. You've been going at it too hard, Buffy. We hardly ever see you. What with slinging the double meat and pounding the big evil. You are looking a little pounded. Just around the eyes. A long time ago in season two, Spike laments that he didn't expect Buffy to have friends and that this is the element that caused his failure to defeat her. In season four, we saw Buffy mind meld with her friends and take down Adam. Here in season six, we're seeing Buffy isolated from her friends, especially from Dawn, and we also see how this serves to sap her strength. Buffy comes home from work to dancing and laughter and happiness and light, and it all stops when she walks in the room. Dawn is going over to Janice's, for real this time, and when Buffy objects, Dawn lays on the guilt. It's not like I knew you'd be home. It's not like you're ever home. And I think this is where a lot of Dawn hate comes from. Buffy is essentially a single mother now, working two demanding jobs to keep a roof over that kid's head, and the guilt is unfair. Still, Buffy feels it, and when Dawn leaves, she decides to go to the bronze with the crew, but then she continues to isolate herself, first by not dancing, and later by retreating into the shadows with Spike. When Buffy goes to Dawn in the middle of the night to tell her she's turning herself in, they are both in shadow, which I think is interesting. Once again, Dawn is a source of conflict, throwing more guilt at Buffy, telling her that Buffy never wanted to come back and didn't want to be there with her in the first place before she storms off angrily without thinking at all about what Buffy's been going through. While this brand of narcissism is natural for a young kid, it remains a little hard to watch and I think also contributes to the Dawn hate that we tend to see from the fans. Still, the idea that Dawn, too, is suffering through a darkness of her own resonates pretty well with the rest of the story, and I think she can be forgiven. Kid's been through a lot, y'all. Cut her some slack. What did you do? What I had to. I went back and I took care of it. It doesn't matter now. No one will ever find her. Where'd they find her? The river. She washed up half a mile from the cemetery. most episodes of Buffy, Dead Things weaves elements from the past into the current story flow, and it works beautifully. 
You can be forgiven for not noticing how much Spike's approach to Buffy's dilemma of accidentally killing a human reflects Faith's perspective on a similar event in season three, right down to throwing the body in the river, only to have it pop up again almost immediately. In Consequences, Faith tells Buffy that with all the people they've saved, they're still firmly in the plus column. In Dead Things, Spike makes almost the exact same argument. One dead girl doesn't tip the scale. We even have Warren setting Buffy up for Katrina's murder, much as Faith tried to do in Consequences. We pull Katrina from the past into the present, and we put Jonathan in the position of once again using magic to coerce sex partners. With the exception of Katrina, for whom we get an explicit flashback, none of these elements are directly referenced. But the astute Buffy watcher may have picked up on some, if not all, of these familiar notes and themes. They're beautifully woven in without drawing attention to themselves, but still making us feel like Buffy isn't playing around anymore. After the rather inconsistent ride we've had in the first half of season six, this is a nice, confident return to form. You always hurt the one you love. Overall, while Dead Things is a difficult episode to watch, what it does with some very dark, very serious themes is impressive. From the writing to the direction, we're seeing Buffy move from an inconsistent season into more assured storytelling. There are still some stumbles to come. I'm really not looking forward to looking at As You Were, although I have hope that I'm remembering it as worse than it actually was. But overall, this is the episode in this season where I feel like I can start to trust the show again to lead me into interesting territory. It's good to have you back, Buffy. And that'll do it for today. Please visit chipperish.com for more information on how you can support the production of Still Pretty and the other work I'm doing there. I'll be back next time with my thoughts on Season 6, Episode 14, Older and Far Away. Until then, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and I may be dead, but at least I'm still pretty. See you later. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.